Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 166. In this episode, we're talking about disability in the Christian tradition with Professor Brian Brock. Professor Brock holds a personal chair in moral and practical theology at the University of Aberdeen and is the author of Wondrously Wounded, Theology, Disability and the Body of Christ, published by Baylor University Press, and Disability, Living into the Diversity of Christ's Body, published by Baker Academic. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Madison Pierce and myself, Stephanie Kate Judd. Madison, I don't know about you, but I found that to be such a rich conversation, um, so much wisdom, so many interesting ideas that Brian was able to share with us. What were some of the key the key take-homes for you? It could be because this came towards the end of the conversation, but I really appreciated hearing um, some of his wisdom for those of us who are trying to do well in our churches. Um, And I also, I really loved his framing of some of the conversation around, um, you know, what our bodies will be like um, in the new heavens and the new earth, um, because he was really hitting on some uh, questions that I've had in my own kind of thinking and stuff. So I thought it was awesome conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that one of one of the really helpful things in his work has been that invitation to stop and pay attention and just... I love this phrase that he has in some of his work about paying disciplined and repentant attention to the concrete bodiliness of another person. So even if they're not communicating verbally, they're still communicating in in different ways, um, you know, through through their bodily, their gait, their gesture, um, and that that there really are gifts on offer. Um, they're not just burdens to church communities. Um, that there there are gifts that we forego if we don't embrace friendship and belonging to one another uh, in our church communities. Um, So I think think you'll really enjoy this conversation. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor Brian Brock. Well, Dr. Brock, it's such a pleasure to have you on The Two Cities. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Dr. Brock. It really is wonderful to get the opportunity to learn more from you. Um, I wonder if you could just give us an idea of what led you to this area, um, both in your career and perhaps also in your in your life. Sure. Uh, I started in this direction studying medical ethics. Um, I'd considered as an undergraduate studying medicine, and I sort of drifted laterally into uh, medical ethics and when I got there, I found it an uncomfortable discipline. Um, I'd gone in to say there seems to be these real pressing issues that Christians should have something to say about. Um, but when I got there, I realized that the discipline is designed uh, to help grease the wheels of modern medicine. So it sort of asks things from the doctor's perspective, primarily um, with the aim of smoothing out hiccups in uh in the process um and in that context disability appears as a kind of speed bump a kind of difficulty and so i i noticed it pretty early on in my graduate studies but i didn't really know exactly what to do with it Um, and it was only much later uh, when i was 
um, doing graduate work when my first child, Adam, was born, who is now uh, 19. And um, he has Down syndrome and autism and was pretty, pretty sick in his first couple of weeks. And um, so now it's really a day-to-day -day experience living with disability. And I, I found that I had a use, I could put that um, kind of academic learning too. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I wonder if I can follow up. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you might understand the difference between the field speaking to uh, medical professionals and you know speaking to people who are um, meeting um, and living in, in community with people um, who have disabilities. So what, what are some of the framings that, that you would, or that you um, appreciate in your work or, or ways you've changed? Sure. Um I mean, one of the common um, questions in medical ethics is how, how to avoid paternalism, meaning in what ways can doctors or medical professionals proceed without imposing their view of how things should go onto patients? And that means I remember kind of uh, a, a sort of memorable moment in my own education was when they were having a, a big, what's called a grand rounds, where they get all the medical students together. I, I studied in a, in a kind of medical school context and they had a panel of ethicists up and they asked the question, if someone, this is in LA, someone in a gang comes in and they're say, they say, we're a part of a gang that has, uh, uh, as, a, as one of its initiation rights, you have to kind of cut the outer part of your ear off. And they're asking you as a doctor to do that. Do you do it or not? Those artificial kind of thought experiments are stock and trade in the discipline. Um, but what I found unsettling was the, the kind of narrowness of the question being put as, does the doctor deploy their authority and power to indulge this essentially irrational request? Um, and uh, it's very hard to get the question out of that framework. So if you are living with people with disabilities going into healthcare context, and being faced with people who see the problem of ethics in those terms, it, it gives you a really different insight into how the how badly formed the question is. Um, you know, if it doesn't encourage you to ask what's different about somebody from a gang coming in to get their ear cut off than somebody coming in to get their any other part of their healthy body cut off, which happens all the time and nobody raises an eyebrow about it. Um, so the kind of biases and the uh, um, uh, authority of gatekeepers were being sort of reified and uh, um, um, built up by the discipline in a way that I thought really disadvantaged those who are find it hardest to live in a kind of modern medical system that's designed for the average human being and not those who have special needs. So Brian, um, you've been working in the disability space for quite a long time now. Um, and what are some of the um, the, the headline um, areas of focus for you within that field? Well, I think in general, um, I would see my own contribution as trying to harness the mainstream of traditional Christian doctrine to unpack disability in a, in a much thicker and phenomenologically richer way. So the, the discipline has tended 
to be dominated by liberation theology. Um, and that's, that's an important um, tradition to say that the best way to think about disabled people is as a something like a pers persecuted or ostracized or even enslaved minority and that they don't deserve to be in that position and that the job of the theologian is to kind of help break down the machinery that keeps them in that place. One of the, uh, Nancy Eastland's um, The Disabled God was one of the really seminal texts early in the tradition. And she just says um, straight out that I'm not talking about intellectual disability. So um, there are, in, a, in addition to um, liberation theology, having a relatively narrow set of doctrinal resources, um, uh, it also is very close to modern identity politics, um, which means that we're going to speak up for people or we're going to have disabled people speak up for themselves. And we're just going to bracket out people who can't speak for themselves. Um, and again, living with Adam, who's nonverbal, uh, gave me kind of license to ask further about what's missing when we set the discipline up that way. Uh, so the, the two, the two headlines for me are, um, disability is, is impacts and is opened up by every doctrinal lo locus in traditional theology. And, um, uh, it's it, it's brought to an acute point by asking the question of how do we speak about people who can't speak for themselves and i think that's something that um you you spend quite a bit of time in your book wondrously wounded trying to wrestle with how, how do i how do i give an account of of the life um that i live with with adam and I, I appreciate that um, this is not really something you can do justice to in in a couple of minutes on a podcast. But could you please one one of the issues that's come up even in us doing this series has been, well, the the discomfort about speaking on this area. Um, you know, people with phys physical disabilities, it's easier to to talk about that because you can get people on on the podcast, but I, I'd love to hear some of your wisdom that you've you've garnered over over the, the 19 years of living with Adam about how do you, how do you bear witness to that? Yeah, that's a, that, that is a big topic. Um, one of the ways in is to say, even in liberation movements, very often take Gandhi as an example, um, the champions of the people who weren't in the position to speak for themselves were those who were highly articulate and maybe from a different social class. Um, uh, you know, the many movements of liberation were fronted by people who weren't from the oppressed class and that that's not in itself proof that the, the voices of the oppressed class are being swallowed by the one who's speaking up for them. So there's a precedent for the kind of speaking that I'm trying to do, um, as a, as a person, and as, as a Christian, um, I think I've really learned quite a lot about how much communication is happening all the time at, 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 at all kinds of levels between people, but also just in the, in creation. Um, so that it's given me a, a deep appreciation for a theology of, of the word, which I would sort of 
Google also has a theology of communication. There's lots of messaging going on all the time that that's coming toward us. And we are, uh, we meaning people with um, standard neurotypical functioning actually are screening quite a lot of it out. Um, one of the ways to talk about autism is to say that it's, or, or something like schizophrenia is it's the inability to filter some of that communication out. I'm quite aware. I was just walking this week with a visiting colleague from Germany and Adam went with us and we walked for probably an hour, an hour and a half. And, um, at the beginning, Adam was, um, being very vocal. And my colleague said, you know, do we need to kind of do anything to make him feel more comfortable here? And I said, it's, he's, he's just communicating his presence and sort of testing the waters. And so sort of by the end, he had taken this guy's arm, uh, and was walking with him. And, um, the, the temporal development of those kind of relationships say quite a lot that if you're paying attention, it, it all of a sudden the kind of term nonverbals gets less and less meaningful. And I think that is a journey that I wish every Christian would go on. Thank you again, Brian. Um, I'm really, I'm enjoying getting to know uh, your son and your family, um, even in this interview. I, I think what you raised there about this kind of idea of, of him being nonverbal um, is really interesting because it does kind of get towards some of your work on difference um, and how we might understand that in relationship to things like wonder or um, you know, in relationship with these other conceptions of disability. So could you say a little bit more about difference and wonder and, and how you bring those themes into conversation? Yeah, um, I kind of open in Wondrously Wounded with retracing the story of uh, the portent, uh, you know, the sign. Um, in the in the ancient world, when a comet happened or an anomalous birth, right, like a you know a, a, a Siamese twin or you know a child with an extra arm was born, um, the the ancient world saw those things as really worrying uh, occurrences and they tended to think the gods are telling us they're trying to set us straight uh and, it, and it's a warning that, um and therefore uh you know even the very body of these infants would be uh experienced as um as painful and augustine i start the book by talking about augustine he's i think being asked by christian parents how do we respond to a birth like this? And um, he could have taken a couple of routes of answer in that question, but he decided to actually turn the question upside down and say, well, a portent looks to us memorable because it's out of the ordinary. Um, and, but we know that God does everything and God creates every human being specifically. And so it must be something that God has done. So that means there's something kind of special going on here. So that's where he would evoke it as um, something to which some special attention should be made as some kind of special work of God. Um, and he used that then to 
uh, elaborate a theology of difference um, by highlighting how incredibly rare it is that that identical twins are born that we can't actually tell tell apart. Right? So actually, difference is kind of the way God works, and sometimes some differences stand out to us as out of the ordinary. But He says um, it's only because they're unfamiliar uh, and rare, not because they're necessarily bad or um, uh, threatening, and they certainly aren't a sign of divine punishment. Um, rather, they um, could well be taken the other way around as a sign of divine uh, interest uh, in this thing that's happening out of the ordinary. And that, um, so I think he, um, at, at that moment, I call that a kind of inversion of perception. Something which seems ugly and threatening gets turned into something which is promising and in a way um, wonderful in being out of the ordinary. And I think in the, in the book, I sort of go to some length to suggest that that's somehow an elaboration of the Christian experience of looking on a state execution, which is a very ugly thing, as the, the kind of salvation of the world. Um, and that the, the juxtaposition of that oddness, um, uh, I think, sort of saturated Christian thought in a way that should give us um, pause for, because we generally, I think we meaning Christians in the modern West, tend to find difference awkward. Uh, and I think people who are different can sense that awkwardness. Yeah, I think you're right. God so frequently reverses what we expect. Um, to the extent that that maybe at some point we should start to expect it. But I really appreciate your answer. And I think that um, at that macro level, there is this, our responses to difference, our responses to disability uh, are not necessarily straightforward. Um, I think that there is often a, a sense of uneasiness or confusion. Um, and even in, in this in this series, we've one of the themes that's come up quite a lot is should we respond with grief and loss or is it is it a gift and just that kind of confusion around um, the responses that we are to have to these kinds of um, things when they present themselves in, in our lives. Are you able to explain to us just some of the handholds that you have developed as you've thought about this? Yeah, I think it's important to let all those responses in and to kind of pray through them and admit them. Um, and one of the stories I tell, the kind of one of the sort of unifying threads in Wondrously Wounded is trying to tell a type of conversion narrative along along that plot line about how living with Adam has had, provoked a sequence a development of um, lament and joy and um, appreciation and wonder and consternation. Um, uh, and what, you know, one of the kind of taglines I use for that is talking about Adam as the healthiest guy I know, uh, even though he has had a range of medical problems, but he's never had, he's never worried about disa being disabled and he's never felt pains 
that he won't go to college or drive. Um, and he almost certainly won't. Um, so that um, one of the ways that I deal with the problem of speaking for him is saying, uh, objectively speaking, he's not disabled, right? He doesn't suffer from it. He doesn't regret it. He doesn't wish he could be anything other than he is. And from a theological standpoint, he's therefore um, a, a paradigm of how to, to receive our creatureliness. And um, so that, that sort of forced me to ask questions about some of my early reactions of, of you know, disappointment about what you would think your first child would go on to do in life or uh, which is of course all projection right so every parent really needs to think about those issues anyway but a disabled child forces that up to the surface much more quickly um, so there's the problem of projection which is uh, again one of the core themes of disability theology is um, that the kind of grading sensation that people with disabilities have in being in the assumptions people make about how they experience their life and what they want from their life and what they are disappointed about not being able to do. Um, so uh, Adam couldn't himself feed that feed that response back to me, but it was pretty obvious that if he's not bothered about it, it's only me that's bothered about it. And on then down that road, I've, I think, come to perhaps um, uh, counterintuitive belief that um, I can't explain all of why God made Adam the way he has, but he has never been other than trisomy at uh, 18, right? So from the beginning, that's been how he was made. And um, I can either say, as most Christians do say, that well that's you know that that kind of stickiness of those two chromosomes produced his being and that's and the stickiness is part of the fallen nature of the universe um after and um locate him as a tragic effect of the brokenness of the universe or um could entertain the thought that fallen or not stickiness of gene replication or not, God let him be that way, or even actively made him that way for whatever he has to do in this time and place as, as a part of the body of Christ. Um, and that to me is, is where the kind of wonder and praise can begin to come up because I can begin to treat him like he's a Christian, like all the rest of us. Um, and that is so counterintuitive and countercultural that it constantly throws up wondrously surprising experiences. I really appreciate um, this thread that you're beginning to unravel there, Brian. And um, what it raises for me, you know, thinking back through your talk about Adam walking with with you and your colleague, um, I was thinking of how. There's difference in the way that he relates to people. And then now what I'm beginning to hear is um, there's even difference in how we might conceive of flourishing. 
um, which is, of course, the case for all of us anyway. But I, I wonder if, uh, and sorry to give you such a broad question sort of out of the blue, but I wonder if you could give us a picture of what you would understand flourishing to be and perhaps how your relationship with Adam has informed that. Yeah. I think that we, the modern Western imagination is relatively hermetically sealed within a medical picture of flourishing, which means like our body is working right, meaning like everybody else's works. Um, even on a good day, Adam's body is not working like everybody else's work. So he's statistically an outlier. Um, uh, and on bad days, he can have pain, um, uh, uh, you know, from illness or um, he has, for instance, a sort of condition in his eyes that that makes them hurt. Um, uh, now, that, so the question of what his flourishing boils down to, um, I think our default setting is, well, if he doesn't have pain physically, then he's flourishing. And I, I simply don't think that's the um, biblical picture. Um, I think um, the Old Testament vision of Shalom and the New Testament vision of the kingdom are uh, uh, interpersonal uh, um, constellations. Um, so I think another way to put it would be, I think the fall is the fall into uh, isolation and that um, disabled people suffer when they're in hospital or when they have pain, not because they are, you know, in a noisy place where they can't sleep or because they have pain. I mean, that, that hurts or that's annoying, but suffering happens when you are isolated from relationship. Um, and and uh, um, that's a whole different level of alienation and um, pain. And I think that is what Christ comes to heal, to sort of embed us in a loving community where people take our pains seriously and our joys seriously and we are together in them um uh and i think when that's happening physical pain sort of fades into the background um uh you know i think for instance end of life issues people are afraid to have pain or lose their mental acuity, but they suffer from dying alone. Uh, and um, so this, this kind of account of wholeness doesn't require seamless medical perfection. Um, it, it sort of operates perfectly well in states of ill health and, and we need our definition of, of wholeness to, to not be upset by um, sort of illness or um, uh, physical limitation. And that's something that I think you you really explore in in um, a lot of your work about um, how kind of the the assumptions about um, you know modern but the modern biomedical industry um, and more ancient notions of what health and wholeness mean. And, and this links back into why, why it is that you say that, you know, Adam is the healthiest person that you know. Mm -hmm. 
Before we pivot into kind of a conversation about healing, because I think that that would be a really helpful thing for our listeners, could you just kind of um, sketch out what some of those key differences between what was comprehended by the notion of healing in the ancient world versus what what are the assumptions that we kind of tacitly import without really realizing it? Sure. I'm really summarizing uh, Bethany Bikini here um, by sort of cataloging six um, characteristics of modern views of sickness and cure. Um, medicine, for instance, first is a is a science, scientific application to cure sickness. Um, second, sickness is uh, focused on individual bodies functioning or not functioning according to statistical norms in the population. Um, third, uh, um, when you go to the doctor, the doctor usually says you're going to have to quit smoking or whatever, right? So there's a there's a um, a demand for change in your behavior design to make your body function better. Um, and fourth, medical professionals are essentially experts on getting bodies functioning properly, or perhaps if they're psychologists, minds functioning properly. Um, fifth, medical professionals tend to be experts in certain body systems, um, and they don't claim to treat the whole person. Right? They, they might give you a drug that has a side effect in some other part of the way the body functions and they'll say, well, I think it does that, but I don't know how it's going to affect you. And you'll have to talk to the endocrinologist to kind of work that out. Um, uh, so those, those five assumptions, I think fit pretty badly with the healing that Jesus is doing, which is clearly not, um, the objective scientific expert coming before people. Uh, um, he, he heals people who the gospels sort of constantly remind us are looking for the Messiah or treating him, calling to him for salvation as the Messiah. He doesn't, he doesn't set up his stall for physical healing. Um, and the healing that he does is also reintegration into community. So the lepers who are healed always sort of go to get certified by the priests, uh, which means that they are no longer outcasts. Um, and it's really quite clear that uh, Jesus cares about the whole person and he heals non-functioning body parts in order to bring the person into integrated wholeness, not to sort of fix some part. Um, and that one of the classic ways in which that's evident is that he'll, when people come to him, um, he sometimes asks them, what, what do you want? He doesn't assume um, that, oh, well, here's somebody who's lame and they want to be healed. That's that uh, if he was seeing healing as a medical doctor, it would just be obvious. And I mean, to me, the reason this theme came up um, in the book is that many disabled people feel really quite put out by the experience of being in churches and having people spontaneously 
or ambush heal them them of their disability. Um, I mean, you know, almost if you're around Christians with disabilities, they will almost inevitably hear a story of a deaf person going up, um, as I heard last week, uh, wanting prayer for cancer and like getting getting sort of hands laid on her ears uh, for healing her deafness and like not even being asked um, what she was up for. Uh, so I think I think Jesus is a is a, uh, is substantively different from the way we understand doctors and healing today, and that that difference is something that the church needs to reappropriate. Yeah, I think um, that's a really helpful reminder for us, especially as we engage with people with disabilities, to continue to um, honor their agency and not to make assumptions. Um, but I also appreciate the threads that you're bringing out in terms of uh, the ministry of Jesus. And I think that one of the assumptions that you sort of combat in the book is that Jesus heals everyone that he meets. Um, I, I've been translating through some of the gospels and um, he definitely heals a lot of people, but he doesn't heal everyone. So could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think another way to sort of ask the question is why did even the lot of the lot of people that he did heal is uh you know a microscopic fraction of even the disabled people in the world at the time or even you know that he passed on the road um so uh there there must have been lots of people who he could have healed but didn't and if we think about the ancient world i mean think about how many people you see wearing hearing aids today um there would have been a lot of people kind of stubbing their feet because they didn't have glasses and uh, hard of hearing. And Jesus could have spent all day handling those kind of, uh, uh, you know, things, um, physical conditions that can be quite disabling. Um, but he, uh, the way the gospels tell the story is that he is healing people who call to him as the Messiah. Uh, they want to be made made clean and redeemed. Uh, um, the the man who's brought down by through the roof by his friends, for instance, um, he he um, forgives his sins, and uh, so then the crowd is saying he can't forgive you can't forgive sins, and he says, oh well if if you want something else, I'll make him walk too, uh, right? So the sequence is always running from his divinity, and healing is. Um, just something he can do, um, but it's it's not um, it's not the reason why he's there, and it's not the 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 aim of his of his ministry. Um, uh, the story of blind Bartimaeus is is that in Mark ten is the story where Jesus actually asks, "What do you want?" Um, uh, and that that is a kind of throne room set piece, right? When the king of the universe, when you come before the king at the beginning of Nehemiah, um, if you ask the king for something that is a dangerous thing and a king who will ask an open-ended question like that is also um, risking exposure of the limits of his power. So it's it's a sign of caring about the agency of Bartimaeus that Jesus asks him 
what do you want? And it's a display of the scope of his power that he can ask a question like that and, um, and answer it in any way that, that Bartimaeus asks. And, um, but the, the story is sort of emphasizes that it, this is catalyzed by Bartimaeus saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, uh, not, hey, Jesus, come, come, you know, make me see. Which is all, I mean, you would never say to the doctor, have mercy on me. Uh, uh, so, you know, there's a pretty stark difference between the two things that are going on if we take the scriptural text seriously. So I just, I would like people with disabilities in church to have more of experience of Jesus and less of experience of the doctor. Really just summarizing Bethany McKinney Fox's um, account of medical healing in distinction from uh, what the healing that Jesus is doing in the gospels here. That's really helpful, Brian. Thank you. Um, and I, I think it's also really important for these narratives. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a New Testament scholar, so you just go, go off on these, but I think it's, it's, it illustrates your point further that Jesus doesn't heal people in the same way every time that he, sometimes he chooses to touch them. Sometimes he pronounces something audibly. Sometimes he does it from a distance. In fact, he often does it from a distance and then the very next story gets in trouble for waiting to, to go somewhere, you know, so there are these, these tensions that come in the narratives that are really funny. Um, so I think that that points us toward the idea that it's not actually about the healing, um, that there's something further there. So just, just a side comment, but I really appreciate your answer. Thank you. And I think that's, um, part of the reason why, Unfortunately, people with disability have that experience so commonly of just people assuming, making assumptions about what their needs are rather than paying attention, <laughs> paying attention to them and, and inquiring of them and, and, you know, sitting alongside is that um, partly we, we defer to these readily accessible scripts that we just kind of maybe subconsciously draw on. Um, and I know that that's something that you've spoken about, like what, what are the scripts that we we adopt without really thinking about it? Um, and, and you've spoken a bit about, well, how do we broaden out our vision of what Christian discernment should be when we encounter disability in our own life or in the life of other people? Could you um, unpack what you mean by that a little bit more? Let's start with a kind of simple point that we're all going to lose capacities that we have to do things right so if if disability is the negation of ability it's coming all of our way uh and i think my starting observation is that i'm i was pressing into the question of healing because uh, people with disabilities have to get going much earlier in their lives with getting coming to terms with who they are and what they can and can't do. Um, so what's going to happen to all of us when we're 50 or 60 uh, is that we're going to be able to see less well than we used to. And we're going to be able to, we're going to be less athletic and, you know, hear less well and remember less well. And um, we're going to end up 
as, uh, facing the same sort of problems of discipleship that disabled people face quite early, right? So uh, one of the reasons why I got onto the topic of healing and became increasingly uncomfortable with the scripts that we neurotypical people uh, import when we experience disabled people in church is that it uh, it downplays or discounts the work that they've done to come to terms with who they are. So very often uh, disabled people when they come into church just find it offensive that they they're not allowed to think, yeah, I'm, I'm okay how I am. I'm deaf and I'm, that's okay, right? That's how God made me. I'm going to be deaf. Um, uh, and there's so many Christians who really become unpleasant people when they turn 70 and they, their knees go out and they can't go skiing um, or they can't do some something that they used to be able to do and they just sort of turn in and become grumpy that I think um, – it's a, re, it's a sort of obvious lack of um, discipleship that we're missing here, that we can't see the work that's going on for people with, without the abilities that, that would make them normal, um, who've, who've learned to, to live with that and don't want to be other than that if they feel like they've been made to be. And, and, and the mainstream sort of resists seeing that or can't see that, and that means at the end of their own lives, they can't make the exact transition that they've seen displayed all the time around them in the lives of disabled Christians, who've probably put up with a lot of misunderstanding to be to even be in church. One of the one of the questions that you you provide in your book um, about well, what what are one of the the tools we can adopt in order to to kind of um, not flip the script but maybe expand the script mm-hmm. is to take to take to, to pause and to ask, well, what story is this person living with God? And you kind of, um, you know, you 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 look at different characters in in the, in the scriptures mm-hmm. um, that have had a different journey, and so um, their their relationship with God, their relationship with a disability, their relationship with the community of God, looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just um, hash out what what that what you mean by that? I introduce that theme by contrasting. Johnny Erickson Tati, a very famous American quadriplegic who uh, was paralyzed from the neck down uh, as a teenager. And when she is resurrected, wants to be able to be able-bodied again. And Chantel Hunick, uh, who uh, basically has had a condition that meant she's always close to quadriplegic and uh, has come to terms with that, feels like she was made that way and doesn't expect to be anything different or doesn't uh, feel like God owes it to her to make her something different in the resurrection. So uh, these two women have different life courses, different life experiences. One once was able-bodied and is, and then was no longer for most of their life and the other never was. Um, so there's two narrative arcs which are traveling in very different directions um and you can add to that those who are for instance you know as i talked about um wrestling with being a parent for instance um uh but aren't disabled themselves um 
you can talk about people who were disabled before they came a, became a Christian and feel like they are they were liberated by becoming a Christian and want to be part of the ministry team, let's say. Um, what's going on for any one person at any moment in their life has to be unpacked in some detail to ask what disability is for them in a theological sense. And and when I say for them, that I'm not saying it's 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 nothing but what they're they subjectively think it is. I I think that um, uh, uh, I'm thinking of another friend, Andrea, who is um, uh, has cerebral palsy and is also in a wheelchair and she's a committed Christian and she's been in a church in Muncie, Indiana, that she just is committed to helping them be a church that's genuinely welcoming of people like her. And that's her, her vocation is to sort of keep pushing like this lift just doesn't work. And here's why. Um, I know deaf Christians who had the same, same sort of calling. So the, I've given about five examples of um, why the idea that we have said all that we need to say when we say because of the fall, there's disability is just woefully uh, impoverished and that closer attention to what's going on with specific people's lives may show us that some of them are wrestling with a sense of lament and tragedy and some of them are really excited about being part of the kingdom of God and some of them may feel called to ministry and some of them may be survive trying to survive um, because of a broken social system and that uh, what we can offer them and receive from them as fellow Christians will be radically different in those different cases. As a springboard of, of that question about, um, I know that certainly it's been true in, in my life that until I had to really think about um, disability and and um, you know resurrection hope and what and what concretely that what what I was imagining about about that um, was you know the assumption I had was that all of this was a result of the fall. Mm-hmm. Something that I'd like to ask you about is in terms of our resurrection hope, and I'm, I'm, I appreciate that this is a highly speculative endeavor, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um, Something I've been thinking about is about whether the the given realities of our body, whether that signifies anything about what normatively we should be hoping for in in a world that is healed, restored, forgiven, um, made well. Um, And so, you know, for example, does the fact that I have an eye with an optical nerve signify that I should have sight? In, in an ideal circumstance, or in in my case, the fact that I have two arms and two legs, two hands, um, I can only use one set of them. Does that, in an in ideal world, should I be hoping for use of all my limbs, essentially? Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is: um, Is there this grain of the kind of created order that informs what? normativity is and in a way that shapes what our resurrection hope 
should be and maybe that that language of should be is is not really useful but i'd love i'd love to hear i'd love i'd love your help in thinking about that sure um the classic case of of that question is um i mean it's a, it's a kind of uncomfortable case uh for a male theologian in the first in the third century and today but uh like that there's going to be no children, so there's going to be no nursing, so there's, there should be no breaths in the resurrection, uh, right? Those are useless appendages. Uh, so um, disability theologians have recently been, um, Candida Moss is is written a book, sort of, un, she's a biblical scholar and she's unpacking some of these questions. I mean, for instance, Jesus seems to assume that the answer to the question, would you rather uh, you know, be blinded and in heaven or, uh, you know, sighted and in hell, uh, right? So he, he and he's, the, the answer appears to be blind in heaven. There's a few other kind of dismemberment images that run along those lines. And um, the tradition, um, Augustine's sort of ruminations about why we would have useless appendages like breasts in the resurrection or women would uh, is, is another way to get around those, uh, to sort of try to handle those um, questions. I tend to take a, a relatively apophatic or ag agnostic um, line with those questions because I think it's really very easy to fall into essentially Greek aesthetics. Um, like the right body is the proportionate body that's uh, neither fat nor thin, too short or too tall, uh, um, you know, too dark or too light, too hairless or hairy. Uh, and if we say something's just not right or Christian or biblical about that mode of, of speculation, um, then I think we're that opens the door to saying we'll have the bodies that we need to have to live redeemed communion uh, uh, when we're resurrected, and that actually um, quite a lot of diversity fits with that. And I think that that uh, mode of theological speculation fits really well with Jesus's uh, imagery of the kingdom as a, a banquet, um, which never even hints that people need to be sort of dressed up or cleaned up or healed to be part of the banquet. Um, so that, I mean, one of my kind of technical contributions as I see it is to reprioritize the question of uh, the bodily, physical order of the resurrection, um, uh, downplay that in relation to the social order which is, I think, the, the focus of uh, those heaven images. Thank you, Brian. That's really helpful. It also reminds me, um, another place that we see difference in terms of what is to come uh, is maybe spatial. Um, and so and it, I'm using this as an analogy. So we see in like the vision of the new heavens and the new earth that in some instances it's a city and sometimes it's a garden. And I've talked to my students about this, and I've, I had a student once say, I really hope that it's not like a city. 
Um, and I said, well, good news. It's also, <laughs> we also have the possibility of hanging out in the garden section of the new heavens. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that this kind of idea of God being capable, of course, of, of crafting it in a way where we're able to worship well. So yeah, I'm, I'm reducing the beautiful things that you've said a little bit, but not at all. I wonder if um, just as we sort of wrap, if we can turn towards some some of your excellent kind of practical wisdom for um, people in churches in particular. So um, is I don't know if you're um, you probably are regularly engaged in counseling churches and how to serve uh, disabled communities. Well, could you let us in on some of the tips that you give them or some of the wisdom that you provide there? Sure. Um a lot of the way that I start with these discussions is to say that everyone is now familiar with um, just physical accessibility. You know, there's wheelchair ramps everywhere. I mean, whether those, in fact, make buildings accessible to the people that want to be there is, is another question. But at, at least the kind of blunt moral responsibility to, to not demand that anybody who comes to church climb up 15 stairs um, to get in is is now well understood. Um, and uh, so I've, I've tended to see that one of my tasks is to really press the second, the second sort of leg of that journey, which is that even when people are there in church, they don't necessarily feel like they're among friends. They still feel like they're outsiders. Mere presence or inclusion is um, sort of sub-Christian is, is um, a theme I've been trying to press. Practically, what would I say? Um, spend concerted time getting to know someone with a disability, uh, especially people with intellectual disabilities, but anybody really. Um, understand that disability is all around you. A lot of it's invisible, like uh, a lot of people struggle with OCD or chronic pain or chronic fatigue, and you can't necessarily see that, um, but it really shapes their experience of the world and what they can and can't do. And I think another uh, shortcut that needs to be resisted is kind of delegating um, responsibility to a, to a committee to find an expert to get a, set up a ministry that they're, um, and it's not because I'm against special needs ministries of various types, but because it is a deferral of the responsibility of the whole church to actually understand how to uh, to be present to all sorts of people, especially people that seem uh, that that are experienced as awkward or other. I also try to encourage Christians and churches not to get hung up on a, a really obvious but uncomfortable aspect of this whole field and that is that the, the language like what do, how do, what do I how do I call what you have uh, right like that that's just so uh, even now trying to describe what the problem is I refer to that as the hesitation blues um, uh, uh, and I think anyone who's kind of different in all the ways human beings can be different from your standard standard average everyday church grower they they feel it if they're experienced as uh, generating intake of breath um, so I'd say practice kind of proactive welcome and accompaniment and that can be just as simple as 
we're glad you're here and you're here. And is there anything we can do to make your stay more comfortable? And I think that the kind of end point of all of this is trying to discover how it feels to actually experience everyone that comes into church as the bearers of the gifts of the spirit for the upbuilding of the community rather than as a kind of uh, demand for some sort of support or uh, uh, or service or, you know, a kind of ministry. And I think that um, it's an understandable, but it's, it's a short circuiting kind of first impulse. So that, that's my kind of outline of the practicalities. Thank you so much, Brian. And I think that um, coming back to that, this motif of wonder, um, there's an opportunity to to pause and to disrupt our expectations and assumptions and um, to pay attention um, more deeply to the gifts that are on offer. And so we're really grateful for your work and we're really grateful for your time in joining us. Thanks so much. It's really great to talk to you. 